Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of Keeping Up With The Card. I'm Els Boone alongside Jabril Taha. You may recognize our names from our past podcast, which was the Stanford Daily Men's Basketball Podcast, which we both have done for the past two years. We still will be covering a lot of basketball when the time comes for that, but you know we're both avid Stanford fans across the board for all sports, and we wanted to extend that coverage to all of all of Cardinal sports. And so we're both really excited to uh, be undertaking this project over the over the next year, coming at you weekly until the until the school year ends in June. So it's, we've got a long ride ahead of us, a lot of sports to talk about. Gabriel, do you want to do you want to say anything as we uh, kind of kick this journey off? Yeah, sure. I was looking forward to doing this all year with you. For those listening to the podcast, we are both juniors now in our third year here at Stanford and to introduce ourselves a little bit. I'll introduce Els first. Els is the managing editor of the Stanford Daily Sports section and something else he has in common with me. We both do radio broadcasting for the student radio station on the side. Myself, also a writer for the Stanford Daily Sports section. I am a senior staff writer and the beat reporter for football this season as I was last year. So we both love covering a bunch of different sports for Stanford and we're looking forward to talking with you all and interacting with everyone throughout this course of the season, having a lot of cool guests on the podcast. Yeah, especially in that last point, having a lot of cool guests on the podcast. We'll have our first guest of this new podcast coming later this episode when we get into kind of football preseason with the season starting just next week. It's hard to believe we're already almost here at college football season, but we have a lot in store for you guys over the course of this next school year, hoping to bring to you some pretty interesting episodes and pretty interesting guests and some nice segments on these on these episodes. So uh, let's just get started, I guess, with the the biggest talk, talking point we possibly could have, which everyone probably is already familiar with, the biggest news from the summer as it relates to really college athletics as a whole, but Stanford in particular, is of course conference realignment with USC and UCLA announcing earlier this summer that they will be leaving the Pac-12 in 2024 to join up with the Big Ten. Real, I know you have been very opinionated and passionate about this topic as we've been talking and texting almost every day about it over the summer. What are your what are your general thoughts on the move? And what were your initial thoughts when you heard that USC and UCLA were leaving the Pac-12? Yeah, well, it's hard not to be pretty passionate about it when you're big college sports fans and it directly impacts your conference like that. Obviously, losing your biggest media market by far, your biggest draw in your conference is a huge blow to the Pac-12. And I guess my initial thoughts were just kind of shock and Fear for Stanford. I mean, incredibly disappointed. And it seems like USC was the driver of this based on all the report, uh, reports. Com- incredibly disappointed they decided to throw away years of history. But on the same note, you completely understand why they did it. The Pac-12 got far behind thanks to past media contracts, a disastrous rollout of the Pac-12 network. And they just haven't been competing at the highest level, especially in football, which drives 75 to 80% of these revenue, of the revenue and these decisions. Uh Again, makes sense why they did it. And as we saw last week, the Big Ten releasing their new seven-year, seven-billion-plus media deal. Who wouldn't jump ship when given the opportunity? And I guess I was sort of fearful for Stanford. I was talking a minute. That fear is maybe calmed down quite a bit since then. It's been a really long month, though, keeping up with all the different rumors and all the different moves that's going on and what could happen in the future. So just disappointed, though, regardless of what happens, if Stanford ends up being fine, as it looks like they will be, it's it's kind of sad to lose the whole Pac-12 vibe we had going on here. Yeah, you know, I would say when I first got the news, when I went on to Twitter in July, my first reactions were pretty doom and gloom. You know, I thought this could be the end of Stanford athletics as we know it. Just 
just because, you know, if everyone was going to jump ship from the Pac-12, I didn't really have any faith that the Stanford administration would be very, you know, aggressive in pursuing a better conference opportunity or really trying to keep the Pac-12 together. And just, we, you know, we've seen in the past few years alone with the administration's decisions, you know, to cut cut sports and then ultimately bring them back after a lot of backlash from alumni, fans, and the teams alike. But as as time has gone on and we're now almost two months removed from that decision or that announcement from USC and UCLA, you know, it's kind of, things have kind of settled themselves out. You know, no other teams have jumped shift from the Pac-12 yet. The conference is working on its new media rights deal. And it seems like the Big Ten for now is going to stay pat with uh, these 16 members starting in 2024. Although there have been, it seems like new rumors that pop up almost every other day with what can happen for different Pac-12 teams, different other different other schools in the country with people joining the Big Ten, the Big 12, the SEC. Um, one of the very popular rumors has been Stanford almost being a package deal with Notre Dame, who Big Ten, who the Big Ten is really going after, I guess, as their as their next member. They would be a pretty significant marquee member if the Big Ten were able to bring them in. And I think we just saw in the past day or two that there's a there's a little clause run into that Big Ten media media rights deal yeah. where if if they bring in Notre Dame, you know, the the networks already know how much more they would have to pay if that if that were to happen. And of course, you know, if you bring in Notre Dame, you have to bring another school with them to make it even. And Stanford's kind of seen as that school because, you know, its academics are up there with Northwestern Notre Dame. It matches that. And then in addition, it gives you a third school in California that not only it helps USC and UCLA a bit with travel, but also when when the Midwest teams fly out to California, they can knock out three games in one trip versus just the two. And so there, you know, there are a lot of a lot of things flying around. And another one of the recent things is that Oregon has been talking to the Big Ten, exploring that. Washington also trying to get into that conference. So really, who knows what's going to happen? And I'm sure a lot of things will continue to change on a day-to-day basis until we find out more about that Pac-12 media rights deal. But honestly, I think the Pac-12 is going to make it make it through. And I did not share that same opinion just a month ago. Jabril, do you have any thoughts about what you think the future of the Pac-12 will be and if the conference will be able to stay intact? Yeah, I disagree with you. I actually think there will be more than 16 teams by 2024. And that's not just based on the rumors, but the recent reporting saying Kevin Warren even saying he's pretty he's open to the idea of expanding more and having 20 teams and people saying that it's just it just it just seems unsustainable to have two schools on the West Coast with no travel partners. I mean, except for themselves, but no one else to play. Like you usually would have Stanford and the Cal right there. You have the Oregon and Washington schools, which aren't too far, about the same distance as Nebraska, I believe someone calculated. But especially with the non-revenue sports, like football, fine. You can fly in Friday or Thursday and go back Sunday. Everything will be fine there. But once you start getting into some of these sports, like are you really going to fly out for a non-revenue sport to Penn State, like a Ohio State trip for women's tennis or men's soccer? You're going to fly them all the way out to Michigan for two games or something? It's just, it's totally unfeasible and just not good on the athletes. That Pac-12 media day, they made the commissioner, Klyavkov, made the point that they think it'll be neutral for football recruiting. Now, I disagree with that. I think it'll be a negative for football recruiting for the Pac-12. I think that's an optimistic take by the commissioner. But he made the point that they think it will actually hurt USC and UCLA for non-revenue sports. And I tend to agree with that. I mean, if you're an athlete, right, You, why would you not go to Stanford? Why would you go to UC, UCLA, USC or UCLA over like Stanford? 
for women's soccer. There's a clear path to the NCAA tournament, a clear path to giving you a shot at the national championship. And you can just travel nearby. You can play USC and UCLA out of conference. Like there's not a great, unless you love the coaching staff, there's not a great convenience rationale to not go to a school like Stanford or Oregon or Washington as long as there's that national championship access. And in the Big Ten for football, there is that national championship access where there really isn't with the playoff standing as now in the Pac-10, say. So I really do think having two schools on the West Coast is unsustainable. And I think I'm about 70 to 80% confident that Stanford will be in the Big Ten in a few years. Yeah, and that's definitely an interesting point about other schools needing to be on the West Coast in the Big Ten. And I, I do agree with that, that point specifically. And I think everything, of course, hinges on Notre Dame's decision to eventually either stay independent, as they always have done, or join the Big Ten. And currently, it seems like they're trying to find any possible way to stay independent, as that's really their their goal, but it's hard to turn down that Big Ten money as we're as we're seeing with that insane media media contract that they just announced this past week. And as as far as as far as Stanford goes, you know, I think the other other recent news that has been has kind of made shockwaves is California Board of Regents just met in the past week yeah. to discuss UCLA's move to the Big Ten. Um, and we've seen a lot of storylines coming out of that just because a lot of the members of the Board of Regents don't necessarily understand how conference realignment works <laughs> or how collegiate athletics as a whole are run. A lot of them are saying, why can't Cal just join with them? Yep. And so there's, I think Wilner put it at probably a 10% or less than 10% chance that the California Board of Regents eventually makes UCLA pull out of the move to the Big Ten. It's not likely that's going to happen, but if that did happen, I think that would be a very interesting domino effect for collegiate athletics as would the Big Ten turn to turn to Stanford to pair with USC kind of as a private school California showing in the conference? Or do they just add Notre Dame and then everyone else kind of gets shut out of the picture, which I think could be very plausible in the scenario that UCLA is forced to remain in the Pac-12. Possible, but I, I I doubt. <laughs> I, I I'd even put it. I feel like it's less than five yeah. percent chance that they're able to keep UCLA. And I think it's far more likely that they either force UCLA to give Cal some of that money to pay off their athletics debt, or they're able to. Or I don't even know if it's UC Regents doing that. Or it's I think it's far more likely that Cal plus Stanford plus Oregon plus or plus Washington end up in the Big Ten themselves, and that resolves the issue. I kind of think it's almost out of the question that they're able to pull the Big Ten out of this or pull UCLA out of the deal, especially now that the media rights are all assigned. I feel like that'd be an incredible, incredible feat for the Regents to be able to do that. Yeah, no, it would be it would be very insane if the Regents were able to block UCLA's potential move. But you know, before we move on from commerce realignment. Just the last touching point I wanted to talk about, you know, is what is the Pac-12's path here to staying relevant and staying intact as a conference? You know, now, starting in 2024, it is down to 10 teams as we stand. And I, I feel like it's pretty widely agreed upon that San Diego State is one of the teams you need to add if you want to keep the Pac-12 as a steady presence on the West Coast, you know, having that Southern California representation with UCLA and USC soon to be gone. But who is the 12th team that you also bring in? You know, I've heard SMU, Boise State, maybe even trying to take one of the new or uh, soon to come Big 12 members like Houston, BYU, or more of the Mountain West. Jabril, I don't know if you have any thoughts about your ideal 12th team to, to come into the Pac-12. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a San Diego State's one, Boise State, and SDSU. Maybe try to get Gonzaga as like a basketball-only member. We'll see. But for me, the value of the Pac-12 rests right now on that 7.30 p.m. Pacific time slot. It's the after-dark time slot, which makes them as valuable or even more valuable than the Big 12 right now. And right now, the Big 10 can't really use that too much. They might have an individual game with USC and UCLA playing each other in that time slot. But are you really going to make, say, Penn State play a game that starts at 10.30 Eastern time in the Coliseum? I don't really think so. So if the Big Ten wants to go for the kill, you take a few more West Coast teams. And then you can have Stanford. You can have Stanford, Oregon, Washington, USC, UCLA, maybe Cal. You can have those teams between them play a game at 7.30 every week and take that time slot away from the Pac-12, have the more high or whatever's left of the Pac, have the more high-profile matchup. So really, for me, it's not as much about adding teams for the Pac-12 right now. you got to make sure you hold on to that West Coast time slot, and that means holding on to these teams. Definitely. I agree with that. And just for my thoughts about who that ideal 12th team would be, you know, it's out of the Western the Western time slot, but I really like uh, that SMU potential addition just because you kind of go into Texas a bit, you add to the recruiting footprint, you add to the viewer footprint, you take it take a school out of Dallas there and add it to the Pac-12. And SMU has shown in their history they can be competitive in both football and basketball. And I'm sure a move to the Pac-12 would bring in some more funding to those programs. And SMU actually has done a great job with NIL so far, probably outranking a good number of the Pac-12 teams in that department. So I think they would fit right in there. So yeah, SMU would be my pick. And Second, not as clo- not a close second, probably would be Boise State, just because they've been pretty competitive in football in the past. The basketball has been right up there on tournament contention in the past few years. They've produced a few NBA draft picks in the last five years. So I think they could also be competitive in the Pac-12. But we don't want to ramble on too long about conference realignment. You know, it's been a major talking point in the news cycle for the past basically two months now. Um, there will be a lot but, more. <laughs> and yes, there will definitely be more talk about it as news unfolds almost every week. So let's let's get into something more Stanford specific and Stanford sports specific. We've had the first two teams on the farm kickoff here in the past week, and that is going to be men's and women's soccer. Women's soccer played their first game just last Thursday, beating Sacramento State 5-0, and they kind of made waves this past Sunday playing the Chinese national team and winning 1-0 thanks to Amaya Dom's goal in the 85th minute. Jabril, what are, what are your expectations for the women's soccer team this fall? And they're, they're ranked number 21 in the preseason poll. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to look at sort of the difference between what the preseason Pac-12 poll had and what the national poll had. I mean, you had Stanford ranked number one in the conference in the preseason poll by the coaches, I believe, vote on that. And then, but then if you look at the actual NCAA poll nationally, you have UCLA and Washington State both above Stanford. Now, looking at the poll this week, Stanford has moved up from preseason number 21 to preseason number 13 in the span of one win, a what was it a five nothing win I believe in their opener against the weak squad and then a very nice one nothing win against the Chinese national team who's ranked in the top 20 of FIFA although that China team did come off a game the very day before against Cal which they drew to too so yeah I think 21 was a little low there's a lot of talent on this roster which we'll get to in a minute now but I thought 21 was a little low and as you saw the people who know the Pac-12 know this Stanford team is better than some people think 
Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think this is a severely underrated Stanford women's soccer team. The talent on here is just undeniable. I mean, you bring in the number one recruit in the country from last year in Elise Evans, who slotted in on the defense this year. Kennedy Wesley is also on the defense with her. She's a senior and she has been a starter for the past couple of years. And then up front in attack, you also have a lot of star-studded players. Amy Sayre, who's on the Australian national team, comes in as more of a consistent starter. The team hasn't even had Andrea Kitahata in the last few matches. She's away with the US U-20 national team. She's an instant starter when she plays. And really the story of this early season has been Samantha Williams, the junior striker. She scored two goals and added an assist in the season opener. And she's really slotted in as a starting striker and looks to make a big contribution for the team this year. So I'm excited to see where the season takes this women's soccer team. And I think when it's all said and done, they just might be playing for a national championship when we get to December. And then also on men's soccer, they are still yet to play their first official game. They'll be playing this Thursday against Villanova at home, but they've had two exhibition matches taking down, taking down Sonoma State and San Francisco. Jabril, do you have any overall thoughts about the men's soccer team? Well, this is a program that's trying to reclaim its glory. They had three straight national titles from 2015 to 2017. And since then, they've they've wanted more than they, they've needed to. They haven't lived up to where they were. They didn't make the tournament last year. They're picked fourth out of six teams in the Pac-12 this season, the Pac-12 being consisting of Cal, Oregon State, Stanford, UCLA, Washington, San Diego State. So really, they need to get back to the reclaim their glory. They've lost a lot of talent, especially up front. Gabe Siegel, Will Richmond, Usani Buddha, Zach Ryan. That's a lot of attacking talent they need to replace here. So there doesn't seem to be a clear path to improvement this year, but who knows what's who knows if they can end up exceeding expectations. But definitely about ranked where I'd have them going into the season, like the women's team, which as we discussed, is probably very underrated. Yeah, I'd agree with that assessment from Jabril. They're probably exactly right where I'd expect them to be heading into this season. As Jabril mentioned, the loss of attacking talent is pretty severe with a lot of those guys playing professionally and in the MLS now. But the strength of the team is the defense and midfield. You know, senior goalkeeper Matt Frank is back. Noah Adnan and Keegan Hughes are back as the center backs. Then Keegan Tingey, who's been a three-year starter at left back, also returns. The only open spot on the defense is right back. But Connor Marr played a lot off the bench last year and I think is ready to pretty much slot in there. And then in central midfield, we've got Mark Fisher and Cam Silly, who have been starters for multiple years. So really the weakness here is attack in terms of not having many returning players. Carlo Agostinelli is the only returner there. And so the issue will be who is going to score the goals and how much production can we get out of those guys up front? Because as we said, the Cardinal had a lot of attacking guys last year and really good ones at that, but they still missed out on the postseason for only the second time in head coach Jeremy Gunn's tenure as the Stanford head coach. And so with that same defense in midfield, but with a less attack, are we going to see them break back into the NCAA tournament? It remains to be seen, but that is going to cover it for our short little soccer segment here. We're going to get into some football and bring on a guest for you guys. All right, everyone, we now bring in our first guest of this year's podcast, and that is Peter Goffin, a fellow Stanford student and KZSU broadcaster. He's been doing football for the past few years, and I know he's excited to be getting back to covering the team again and being the commentator for that. Peter, how are you doing? 
really well. Thanks for having me, Alice and Jabril. Great to be on with you. Excited for this season. It's football, you know, time once again. So ready to rock. Indeed. Let's talk about last season, though, before we get to this one. You being sports director and play-by-play broadcaster for student radio. We're at all 12 of those games. Three of them were enjoyable, I'd say. Got especially ugly down the end, down there at the end. So I want to talk about what you think went wrong last season and more generally what is the recent collapse of the program why did it happen how much do blame do you put on stuff like early enrollees and early signing day versus stuff like injuries or the lack of player development and the coaching staff yeah so i think there's a myriad of factors that kind of go into something like this look at the program maybe having its ascent with you know the rose bowl in 2015 or so and it's really hard to stay good in college football i mean bar pretty much alabama you don't see programs even the blue bloods who are consistently at their peak and so a lot of things go into that you mentioned the injuries the all mean release and recruiting's been challenging the nil stuff is i think you know even more so and transfer portal being so prominent almost the free agency isn't going to help stanford either as far as what kind of tailed off during the season, David Shaw ultimately said that mentality of the team changed a little bit at the Arizona State game. And that was the first one that spurred that seven game losing streak. It's really, really challenging in football to be there competing when you don't feel like you're at your best and guys are coming in and out and whatnot. And that kind of just spiraled, I think, such that the last four games of the season almost felt like mulligans. Yeah, no, I I agree with a lot of that. I would definitely say it was a myriad of factors. Injuries is too much of a cop-out answer that we've heard a lot in the past and especially from last season. You know, really, I think what's contributed a lot to the fall of the Stanford program to where it has been now, if you look back to when the team was dominant, when they were making Rose Bowls early on in David Shaw's tenure, it was because they had a dominant offensive and defensive line. You know, they're very dominant in the trenches, and we just not have not seen that in the last couple of years. Recruiting has really fallen off, especially on the defensive line. And then a lot of the high-profile recruits we've seen on the offensive line just have not panned out whether that's due to injuries or a lack of player development from the coaching staff. And so I'm interested to see if some of these issues can be remedied here in the near future, especially as Coach Heffernan, the new offensive line coach, gets into his first, you know, real season where he's had an offseason before with the team. So you sort of touched on my next question here, Els. And that said, at the end of that last season, getting killed at the end of those games, lots of fans called for coaching changes. A Shaw in training camp sort of made the argument that, no, the continuity that we have as a staff is more important. How much do you buy that? I'll start with you on this one. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if I buy Shaw's reasoning for not letting go of anyone on the coaching staff. You know, I think I'm pretty sure that Shaw's never fired any assistant that he's had at his uh, during his Stanford tenure. You know, if anyone's left, it was of their own their own doing. Um, And I I don't know if that's he just gets comfortable with his guys and he doesn't feel that anything needs to be changed or what. But I definitely think this program needs some new ideas as as it relates to assistant coaches. So I, I don't necessarily buy that by that excuse. I do think that the idea that, hey, you make a switch at one coordinator position or one position coach or adding, you know, someone in strength and conditioning and everything just magically, you know, goes back to where it was is, you know, quite a leap. So I'm okay with not doing some big overhaul there. 
There is something to be said, though, right, where Coach also talked about going sort of ground up this offseason and really revisiting everything that the team does and what should be in there schematically and whatnot. And I do think there you want to have some outside conversations. Maybe that happened, right, with coaches from other schools. There are lots of, you know, uh, opportunities for that, looking at things uh, across the country in the NFL and high school and whatnot. But uh, to continue pushing forward, I do have a little bit of a concern if you play the game of your best coaches get poached because, right, your coordinators take head coaching jobs somewhere else. Your position coaches become coordinators at other schools. The ones that stay, stay. And sure, there's a little bit of loyalty that factors in, but you almost will wind up with a staff of guys who aren't really, really good because you're saying that the top ones always move on. And so in the long term, I'm not sure that that's a feasible strategy to only keep what you have. That said, it's not as if you want to fix things easily with, you know, one or two changes. So I think there's, you know, an opportunity here to bring those guys closer as Shaw talked about and see what he can do with them. Yeah, I agree with that lack of poaching by other programs of the NFL being a major concern for the health of the program. But let's get to the coach that fans at least had on the hot seat the most and that most, and that's defensive coordinator, Lance Anderson. Let's talk about the roster he has this season. Now, obviously the biggest concern for him last year and this year as well was the defensive line, one of the worst in America last year. And it loses almost all its key contributors, Thomas Booker, Dalen Wade Perry, Ryan Johnson, Tucker Fisk. Uh, he is talking about this change to the 4-3 that they made. It clearly fits our personnel better. But do you actually foresee it paying off this year or is the talent just not there? And along the same lines, what do you expect to see from star recruit David Bailey here in year one? We'll start with Peter. Yeah, I think we're putting a lot on Bailey's shoulders to think of him as a true freshman, even if he wasn't early on really and playing a ton of snaps. My expectation is we're going to get a lot of rotation up front, and it's not that a ton of these names are super sexy, but there's a way to get things done. A big change with going for you know the three-man to a four-man front is these guys are going to have simpler responsibilities. If I'm one-gapping, which is to say sort of I'm going straight ahead and blocking my lane as opposed to two-gapping in a three-four, that allows me to get off the ball, play fast, and really just sort of leverage my body rather than having to think a little bit more. And so, well, there aren't two 300-pound guys in the middle that you might have wanted to see from prior Stanford teams. I think that this does give a chance here to streamline things a little bit. Ultimately, look, it's a lighter part of the team, you know, physically and in talent and star ranking. So you're going to need to ask a little bit more of the linebackers to clean up tackling, to have coverage on the back end. and. I wouldn't be extremely bullish on the front seven, but there's nothing that says this needs to be a unit that's getting gashed for, you know, seven, eight yards per carry that it was down the stretch last season. Yeah, I can definitely see why the coaches decide to move for this 4-3. And, you know, they even did it towards the middle of last season pretty unceremoniously. You know, Shaw didn't didn't mention they were going to a 4-3. He kind of just after the season said, you know, we switched to a 4-3 there and we're going to keep going with that in this offseason and into next season. So I'm interested to see how it pans out. I do think we will see better results just because, you know, the defensive line has really been the weak point of this defense for the past couple of seasons. And we're really going to miss some of those guys we've had the past few years, even though guys like Thomas Booker, Dan Wade Perry were not as productive as it may have seen, seemed like. And so defensive line going from going from three out there to just two with two edge guys on either side of them, I think is going to be a net positive for this defense. You know, the edge 
Edge is probably the most talent-rich position on defense, albeit very unproven, with names like David Bailey, who you both have already mentioned, Aaron Armitage, Stephen Heron, Wilfredo Ibar, who may be out for the season, we still do not know, and then other high recruits, Ernest Cooper and Teva Tafiti. And then if you go beyond them, I'm really high on the secondary, um, who, if if you haven't heard, you know, bringing in Patrick Fields from Oklahoma, who's a three-year starter there, Kendall Williamson, Jonathan McGill, both back. And then, of course, Kyle Kelly at corner. So I think the secondary is going to be right up there with the best in the Pac-12. It's just if the front seven can clean up in the tackling department and stop getting gas for those long run plays, as Peter mentioned. Yeah, and you touched on the secondary, and I want to expand further on that. As I think most of us can agree, that safety looks safety group looks pretty good with a three-year starter from Oklahoma, Patrick Fields transfer, and Kendall Williamson back again. Jonathan McGill finally healthy. Should be good to go in the season starts. He's named team captain. I want to talk about that corner depth, though. Are you guys confident that there's depth behind Kai Bukele in that room? Do Ethan Bonner, Salim Turner, Muhammad, do guys like those provide that depth that needed? Or are we worried when we face teams with multiple good wide receivers like, like a USC week two? Yeah, I think there's definitely a drop-off after Kyle Blue Kelly, but it's hard for there not to be when you have kind of an all-American caliber corner there. But the guys right behind him in Ethan Bonner, Salim Turner, Muhammad, Nicholas Toomer, and Jaden Slocum, I really think all of those guys are pretty much at around the same ability. So I think you have a lot of depth there at corner, just there is a drop-off between the number one guy and Kelly and the rest of them. But I think that Turner Muhammad and uh, Tumor and Slocum especially have the potential to develop into pretty solid cornerbacks. Ethan Bonner, I'm not very high on him. I think we've kind of seen his his best days in the past. The Stanford is coming off a few injuries, but I think the potential is definitely there in the rest of the group to, to shine here this season. I'll push back a little bit on Bonner, and you mentioned the injuries. I'm just not sure we've ever gotten to see him play at full strength and sort of string games together. And so to me, there's sort of a little bit more of an uncertainty. Seems like he's going to be the guy at the second quarterback spot to start the year. And obviously, great athlete, super, super fast, you know, got someone who can stick with guys on the perimeter. We'll see what shapes up there. And then Nozar and Manley is a little bit of a red flag, got pulled off the roster and didn't get any more information on sort of what his situation is. But Jabril, to the point of what do you have in terms of depth in the cornerback room? Well, it's always nice to have more guys there. We saw last year what happens, you know, once you're missing a couple and so I'd obviously love to have an extra body or two, but secondary overall stronger part of the defense. And I think a spot that having an alpha guy can go a long way. And so if Kyle Blue Kelly is able to play to his potential and be an All-American type player, that is going to go a long, long way for Stanford's defense. It sure will. And now let's take a look at the other side of the ball. Tavita Pritchard, the offense coordinator, and his offensive roster. Shaw, of course, big involvement on the offensive side of the ball as well. Let's start with the big position, the quarterback position. Tanner McKee slotting in there for the Cardinal, the junior. Black, this is his second year back from his two-year mission. Uh, so what are your expectations for him? Some have him as a projected first-round pick in next year's NFL draft, but he seems to be relegated to the second tier of conference of quarterbacks in the Pac-12 conference with Cam Rising of Utah and uh, Caleb Williams of USC always seem to be slotted above him. Do you have Tanner McKee in that second tier, or do you think he's just as good as those top-tier quarterbacks, Peter? probably have him sort of knocking on that door and so a chance for him to sort of ascend up he's a guy who could be one of the best quarterbacks in the country and deservedly a first round pick 
And so I want to see a little bit more out of him in terms of his consistency. He's a guy that, you know, ran for a lot of yards in high school. It feels like he hasn't made use of his athleticism in quite the same way. I want to see him, you know, be on point with his footwork, be a little more twitchy, comfortable handling pressure and whatnot, and sort of being in year two as the starter should allow him to make strides there. Look, when you have a quarterback also that can be a first round pick, I was doing some research into this. The last time a first round quarterback was on a college team that didn't at least have, you know, bowl game eligibility in a winning season was Pat Mahomes in his final year at Texas Tech. And so normally if you have someone of that caliber, you should be in the mix. And so a lot is always going to be resting on the quarterback's shoulders. And I think that McKee is someone who really this season is going to hinge on quite a bit. Yeah, I would pretty much echo a lot of what Peter just said. In terms of talent, he's up there with the best quarterbacks in the country. But when it comes to production and his consistency, he's knocking on the door of that upper tier of Pac-12 quarterbacks. So really, you know, last season, he kind of came out the gates pretty hot, especially that USC game in Oregon with some pretty high-level performances. But then as the season went on, his production kind of dropped off a bit. He did miss a few games with injury. Um, and re- never really was the same when he came back from that. So I'm looking for him to hopefully, you know, knock on wood, be fully healthy this season and be able to string together those strong performances and show why he's seen as one of the, the most talented quarterbacks in the country. So moving off of McKee, let's talk about his weapons he have. Stanford fans are pretty confident in the proven experience weapons he has, especially at wide receiver, you got Bryson Tremaine, Michael Wilson, Elijah Higgins, John Humphreys. At tight end, you have a potential Pac-12 first-team player in Ben Urosic. Running back, yes, EJ Smith is injury-prone, and we lost a couple running backs in the room, but people are pretty high on EJ Smith and his ability, both in the running and passing game. Where do you think Stanford's skill players on the offense rank in terms of the rest of the conference? Yeah, I, I certainly would not trade Stanford Stanford's passing weapons with any other team in the in the conference. And I don't, I don't know if I would necessarily trade any of them with other teams in the country. I'm pretty I'm pretty high on this group of wide receivers and tight ends. You know, in my mind, you basically have four wide receiver ones here with Mike Wilson, Elijah Higgins, Tremaine, and John Humphreys. And then Urosic is one of the best tight ends in the country. And I'm interested to see how how Sam Rush factors into the into the equation this year. He impressed in the spring game, and I think he could be a pretty solid tight end too until until it ends up going to the NFL. So you have a lot of high level guys here. The question, of course, the receivers is, can they stay healthy? You know, the top three guys last year all missed games because of injury. Humphreys also was knocked out with an injury. The guys behind them have been solid and have potential, but we haven't been able to see them necessarily shine yet. But I'm very high on this group as a whole, and I am excited to see what they can do with McKee throwing consistently. I'll throw a plug to Jordan Addison and Mario Williams at USC is a, you know, pretty dynamic <laughs> duo if we're talking skill position guys in the the Pac-12. But I think Els is right that this is a, a loaded group and maybe the spot where things don't totally start to add up for me. I mean, even, you know, reading PFF's top draft prospects from the Pac-12, they've got four from Stanford's offense, Tanner, Higgins, Jurassic, EJ Smith. And with those guys, you're kind of wondering, why isn't this team, you know, expected to be one of the best offenses in the country? And you have an offensive minded head coach who's your play caller and whatnot, too. And sometimes, you know, teams are greater than the sum of their parts. It feels like at least expectation wise from the public, this team is much less than the sum of the parts. And certainly the offensive line is going to be a big driver to whether those guys are able to reach the potential. But I'm very, very high on this group, too. I think they're going to be a lot of fun to watch. And 
I think that Stanford's got to, you know, kind of push the needle a little bit and try to put up some points in maybe a little bit different fashion than what we've seen from historical success, right? Those peak Stanford teams often were a little bit more grounded pound intellectual brutality. And with the weapons you have, it, it might be a chance here to be passing on 60% of your plays and just taking advantage of those plus matchups. Yeah. And you mentioned it, Peters. So let's, let's talk about this offensive line. It's full of upperclassmen who are all highly rated recruits out of high school. It's year two of, uh, offensive line coach Terry Heffernan. He has his first normal non-COVID influenced offseason with everyone. They're all a year older. So there's this clear path to improvement, unlike the D-line, where they're losing all their starters and basically starting from scratch, it seems like. So it's really hard to envision this offensive line being any worse than it was last year. So I'm going to ask the same sort of question about what are your expectations of them? Where do you see them in this conference? It feels like with the skill positions guys are talking about, just an average offensive line in this conference could make this offense really, really good. The thing for me always when it comes to offensive line plays, I think of it as a weak link system. You could have four really good guys, but if one of them isn't holding up, right, your play gets blown up. And so that's a spot where you want to be solid across the board. And for Stanford last year, it felt like even when you had really good play from a couple of the guys, just something went wrong. And that prevented those big plays from coming together and really any consistency in the offense getting clicking. And so got to have some strides at the tackle positions that were sometimes a little bit, you know, sloppier than you'd like to see in terms of pass pro. I think that the interior is a really strong spot to me. Branson Bragg is, you know, the best returning offensive lineman and a guy that should be a bona fide NFL player. Sounds like Walter Rouse has been doing really, really well in camp, even dating back to spring. And so it's just going to be the consistency and maybe, you know, the depth year, something to think about. We thought it was thin last year. Looks like James Pogrell's already suffered an injury. So take one more body, you know, out of the rotation there. And hopefully Stanford is able to have these guys stay healthy because once you get deeper and deeper, that sort of weak link issue props up once again. Yeah, you know, you look at this offensive line on paper and you it's kind of hard to see why the unit has struggled over the past few years. You know, four of the five starters are seniors. Walter Rouse will be a four-year starter. Branson Bragg, the other interior guys all have double digit starts to their career. And Miles Hinton, the starting right tackle, was a top 100 recruit out of high school. We just did not see that all come together. Last year, Hinton struggled heavily, and we need to see huge strides from him coming this season. Bragg missed quarter of the season, but he was very strong, as Peter said, arguably the, the top offensive lineman of the group. And I'm I'm interested to see if this experience of the group can finally come together, if Coach Heffernan can put it all together and we can finally see another dominant Stanford offensive line because they definitely have the talent to do so. Now it's just all about can they put it together and uh, string together these performances. Now let's move away from the offense and move to the last unit on this group, the special teams. Just a brief question. What are your expectations from them? Josh Carty last year going 10 for 15 on field goals, but... Four of those were outside of 50 yards, so a pretty great debut season for him as a starting kicker. Just is this a strength for the team? Is it a weakness, or is it a very is a neutral? Yeah, in terms of in terms of Cardi, I'm interested to see if he can. You know, he's kind of been billed as as being able to hit field goals from more than 50 yards. We just haven't seen that yet last season so far or in his Stanford career. And I'm interested to see if he can he can start hitting those with any consistency. So right now I'm going to put him at neutral because of that. Sanborn has 
has been a solid punter, but he's been put in some pretty tough positions that have kind of caused uh, caused some tough situations for the Stanford Stanford defense. Overall, it puts special teams, you know, at a at a neutral. And then as it comes to returners, Nathaniel Pete is gone from a season ago. Casey Filkins is back, but he's been pretty injury riddled over the past few years. So I don't know if he can be a consistent returner or who else Stanford has behind him. I'm interested to hear Peter's thoughts about the group. Yeah, I think EJ Smith's another guy who we may see factoring in with returns. And then you get to the question of should your top two running backs be, you know, returning kicks and punts. But ultimately, those guys should be good returners, right? They're quick, elusive, whatnot. I think that they can be, you know, above average in those roles, especially Felkins, you know, has shown his promise there. Cardi, I like as a kicker and having the range is, you know, obviously very valuable. Hope to get a little more consistency from him and Sanborn with the punting. The success of this team is not going to ride on the special teams, but I would imagine that we're looking at, you know, one of the better units in the Pac-12 overall. And, you know, in a game of small edges, that's something that's always nice to compound in. It sure is. And now let's talk about those games themselves. Looking big picture at the 2022 Stanford Cardinals season. And just looking at this schedule, guys, it's it's brutal. I mean, you have five games against preseason top 25 teams, road matchups in Seattle and Eugene. In, in South Bend, uh, down at UCLA, at Utah and Salt Lake City. You have home games against USC and BYU. The big game is on the road this year. And you have this week three bye that's just completely absurd to me. So you're going to have 10 straight games there uh, to finish the season, starting that 10-game stretch at Washington, at Oregon. That's just ridiculous. Uh, Vegas has the Cardinals slotted at four and a half wins on the season. That seems about right to me. But I want to get your thoughts. What are your guys' win total projections for the Cardinal and where do you sort of see them getting those wins? Yeah, four and a half feels like a, a reasonable number, you know, coming out of what we had from last season and knowing that 2019 also in a full 12 game slate wasn't strong as Stanford team. I think there's a lot of uncertainty on, on both edges coming out of COVID, seeing the college football landscape changing and whatnot. Look, we have no idea when, you know, a team like USC brings in so many new players, whether they're going to manifest you know that talent quickly and so that might be Stanford's chance to really push things early on ultimately the Colgate game to lead things off is a lock so if you're really trying to tabulate wins you can throw that on there and kind of look at those next 11 it'd be challenging to get a win in Eugene South Bend Salt Lake but you never know whether Stanford's going to grab one of those frisky ones the home games are the ones that you feel more comfortable about and even if those are sort of closer to coin toss ones, you're open to string some of that together to get to bowl eligibility. So I'm not sure I'm putting an exact number on it, but I'd say the home slate is a lot more favorable. And then you really just try to go out there and steal one or two from those. Wouldn't surprise me at all if the last game or two of the season end up being sort of what defines whether this team is able to go bowling. Yeah, I, I agree with Peter that I think this team will be on the brink of qualifying for a bowl here. And I think they do end up becoming bowl eligible. I have them right now at about six wins. You know, I've always kind of skewed positive, especially when looking at the uncertainty. I just really believe in the talent of this team. Peter mentioned it earlier, you know, when you look at the talent with PFF having four of the Cardinal offensive players, you know, projected to be top draft picks, it's hard to it's hard to see that not coming together. And if it doesn't come together, that's certainly an indictment of, of the coaching staff. And we, if the team's not able to put it together, I'm interested to see your guys' thoughts on things that would have to happen after the season. 
yells, you always do more, run more positive. There's there's a reason you always come in last place in the men's basketball record predictions every year. But let's talk about that bull appearance. With all the talent, Stanford's set to lose next year. Caillou Blue Kelly, McKee, a bunch of that wide receiver group, that offensive line. So they're going to be depleted in 2023. Uh, is anything but a bull appearance a failure of a season? Do they have to make a bull to have a successful season? What sort of defines that success, successful season for you guys? Yeah, I think a successful season is a winning record and making a bowl. And that's just the standard that's been set by David Shaw himself of his early success in his tenure. You know, that's kind of the the downfall of being being very successful when you come in as the Stanford head coach and making Rose Bowls is that once once you do that, you know, losing seasons aren't going to cut it and they shouldn't cut it at any school, honestly. And so I think this team has to define success as having a winning record, making a bowl. And I know their expectations are even higher trying to win win the Pac-12 and be ranked at the end of the year. Yeah, David Shaw would tell you that the expectation is going to be making the Rose Bowl and that yep. he wouldn't set his sights any lower. And I think that's absolutely the mentality that you need to have. If we're looking at it as, right, from a fan's perspective and outside and just knowing where things are going, well, you aren't always going to sort of yo-yo up from best to worst in any given season. And so in the same way that I think I said early on here it's really hard to sustain success it's also challenging to sustain not you know having things together because there is sort of an associated inertia and you know guys get the drive and desire to want to perform at a high level and so if you go from three wins to six wins and get a ball i think that absolutely is something that i'd be okay walking away with if you land in that four or five range, you know, maybe we're having some conversations overall about where we want to see things go. But ultimately, it's a challenging schedule. You know, we can admit up to that and knowing that there's still so many moving pieces that are sort of creating a difficult situation to be managing and cheering for Stanford football right now. I think that just being competitive here and enjoying this ride is going to be a good way to look at things because it's hard to know whether this lends on being a really solid season or something where, yes, it can sort of spiral on the lower end of outcomes if things aren't great early on. It sure is hard to know. And I'm going to ask you an even more difficult question to close things out, Peter. So let's talk about your confidence level in the direction of the program. And very generally, I think we're all expecting a pretty down season in 2023 but beyond that once the COVID effects on recruiting wear off maybe Stanford joins the Big Ten who knows what's going to happen but general thoughts on the direction that the program is heading you have the floor kind of go both ways on this one I mean there are times certainly when I was in the stadium you know calling those last couple of games you know at the end of 2021 it felt like things were really really dire taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture I think there is something to be said for the wackiness that COVID imposed on this program and in the school and sort of those lingering effects where even if you get out of it after you run a marathon you're fatigued and so going and putting all that energy into a 2020 season and it actually coming out with a decent result there is you know bizarre as some of those circumstances were it doesn't entirely surprise me that when hit with some adversity the 2021 team maybe didn't rise to you know the occasion the way you would have wanted things to go and so knowing what's coming in I, in the future Feel like things are still in a steady state. I'm not sure there's anything promising to me that says, hey, Stanford is going to get back to those, you know, 2010 stays and be playing in a Rose Bowl anytime soon. 
but the conference realignment is going to play a big, big factor in sort of recruiting and where the program lands. So that honestly may be more important than anything that happens immediately on the field or with the coaching staff or with this program on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, you know, how confident I am in the direction of this program really hinges on their performance this season. I think that's what it's going to boil down to for me in terms of off the field stuff there. I'm certainly pretty confident that, you know, they've kind of righted the ship recruiting wise after kind of a bit of a disastrous 2021 class. They've strung together back to back top 30 classes if this 2023 class can remain on its current pace. And I, you know, they've been able to start getting early enrollees here and Coach Shaw said he's trying to increase that number each year. And so for me, my confidence level just comes down to how well the team plays this year. If Coach Shaw can get him into a bowl and have a winning season, you know, I think he will have kind of put a lot of doubters to bed and shown that he can do what he should be doing with the talent level he has. And so I would be I'll be pretty confident in the direction of this program if the team can can make a bowl and have a winning season. Well, that'll do it for our football preview. Stanford opening its season at home on the farm on Saturday, September 3rd at 5 p.m. Pacific against the Colgate Raiders, a school in the FCS division. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Again, Peter Govin, sports director at KZSU 90.1 FM, Stanford student radio station. He'll be on the call for that game against Colgate. And we thank him for his time today. Always a pleasure talking to you, Peter. Thanks, guys. Good to be on. Thanks again to Peter for joining us on this inaugural episode to talk about an overview of Stanford football as the season is fast approaching us. That'll pretty much wrap it up here for our for our first episode of Keeping Up with the Card with Els and Jabril. It's been a blast getting back to talking about Stanford sports with Jabril. Um, we'll be back next week to kind of preview that first football game against Colgate, go in-depth about Stanford women's volleyball, and talk about anything else that's been happening on the farm uh, with men's and women's soccer continuing their season field hockey starting up here soon so we're we're gonna have a lot to talk about next week and i'm excited to keep this going so that'll wrap it up for week one see you guys next week